his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his person, his work, his ascension, his one day, his, his, his return, his lordship, his saviorness, his grace, his truth, his justice, his mercy. He is everything we need. We were made for him, and I thank you that you have given us to him, and that you continue to connect us to him through his spirits, and that one day we will experience him making all things new. So we thank you for that, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, guys, so if you're new, uh, again, my name's Andy. Um, if you are new, um, it's, it's a decent time to be new. But we are in a series called Gospel Depth. It's a letter going through the, uh, it's, it's a series going through the, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans, or what some people call the Book of Romans. And so far in Romans, Paul's been laying out uh, a gospel message or a good news message. Gospel just means good news in Greek. Uh, and it's kind of an announcement of a good thing that happened, of a, usually an announcement of a victory it's the idea that Jesus has come to make everything right, to start the process of uh, restoring the entire world. And in chapters 1 through 3, Paul lays out what is wrong with humanity and how God is seeking to make it right again. And in chapter 4, Paul teaches us that we can be made right with God by faith, by trusting God again, by trusting in what, what Jesus did and who he is. In chapters 5 to 8, Paul impacts what is now true of us because of what Jesus has done. There's all these amazing promises in the gospel, stuff that almost seems too good to be true. And then in chapters 12 to 15, which we'll be looking at in a few weeks' time, Paul is going to lay out how we're called to live if this gospel is true. So 5 to 8, here's what's true because of the gospel. And if that stuff's true, here's how you're called to live. That's chapters 12 to 15. But in between Romans 5 to 8, where Paul is laying out here's what's true because of what Jesus has done, and between that and here's what we should do in light of what Jesus has done, um, Paul is dealing with an objection that this too-good-to-be-true gospel message is just too good to be true. And so in Romans 9 to 11, we've been unpacking uh, for these past few weeks that Paul is dealing with this one really big argument that the original readers of Paul's letter to the Romans would have had. And the objection to his message is this. If, if the gospel is true, if nothing can separate us from the love of God as his people in Christ, why couldn't God keep his old covenant people, Israel? Now, that might not be a question burning in your heart this morning, but at that time it would have been, especially if you were, in fact, a Jewish believer, and the entire church at the beginning was Jewish. Gentiles got slowly added over time. So they're kind of wondering, didn't he say he would never stop loving Israel? Didn't he make these promises to Abraham about his people? And so why should I trust that he could keep this new covenant people, the church, this, this new covenant in the gospel. And so throughout this section of the letter, Paul started, start, has, has answered this question. Um, and, and he said in, in Romans 9 and 10 and 11, uh, he said it wasn't the race of those in Israel that made them his people. It was his grace among those people, that there were some in Israel that trusted him and some who didn't. So God's revealed himself to the world through Israel, but not all of Israel was God's people. Um, some really were his. Some really were saved. Um, and so understanding salvation is a key part of Romans uh, 9 to 11. Uh, again, he's doing his parts to answer the objection, why couldn't God save Israel? Now, though that's the, the, the main um, original context, the salvation of Israel, there's still much we can learn about salvation in general. And that's what we've been doing. We've been learning about who can be saved, how they are saved. Um, and so today we're going to look at this question of how can we know, how can we continue to be saved? Uh, how do we know as we look at the, the long race of life that we truly are his people? 
Now again, um, I'm going to use the word salvation quite a bit today as we close out this section of the letter that, that highlights salvation. Um, and I just want to say salvation is a beautiful concept, but as a word in English, it's been kind of hijacked by sad religious people, unfortunately. Uh, sad religious people on one hand, or just people that make kind of trivial statements on the other hand. But I want us to talk about salvation because it is a biblical word, it is a biblical reality, and rightly understood and experienced, salvation is a beautiful thing. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, that the, that the word for saved in Greek is the word sozo, uh, and it's translated as saved, healed, delivered. Uh, this word's used over a hundred times in the New Testament to refer to what some people call the complete package of salvation, deliverance, healing. For instance, in the story of the ten lepers in Luke 17, nine got cleansed of their leprosy, and the one that went back to Jesus praising God for his healing was sozoed, cleansed and made whole. And so salvation, again, rescuing, healing, delivering. And again, in this fallen world where everything is not as it should be, everyone you have ever met, including yourself, deep down, you know that you need rescuing, healing, or delivering. We may disagree on who can provide that or what can provide that, but in our hearts, we know we're not who we even want to be. I don't care how religious you are or how secular you are. What you put your faith or trust in, you're looking for something to save you, to rescue you, to sozo you. Our souls so often feel empty, afraid, or unfulfilled. Many of us have been abused, abandoned, or oppressed. We've got all these wounds. On top of that, uh, we've got sin. We've hurt others. We've not just been hurt, but we have hurt people. I was watching a documentary recently, and they were describing a person who was caught in kind of an egregious lie and sin. And, and, and the sentence they used to describe this person was, this woman is both the villain and the victim of her own story. That's actually true of all of us, if we're honest as people. And so we need saving. We need healing. And again, so much of our culture is dealing with, with this at its most fundamental level. Mostly what we're talking about as a culture is how do we sozo ourselves and how do we sozo our world? How do we make it right? And the answer Paul would give is you can't apart from Jesus. And so to take one more look at salvation in Romans 9 to 11, this is the last time we're going to be in these chapters, um, we're going to look at some uh, verses that I passed over last week um, uh, for time's sake. So we're going to dive back into those during the middle of the letter. So we're going to jump back up to some verses I did teach, and then we're going to dive into some stuff that I didn't. So if you have Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 11, and we'll be starting in verse 13. Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11 verse 13. All right, Paul says this, verse 13, he says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Insofar as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. God, so apostle just means messenger or sent one. I was sent to the Gentiles. Verse 14, if I might somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. Now, one of the hard parts of teaching through Romans 9 to 11 is it is almost entirely about the nation of Israel and Jewish people. Now, I don't know about you guys, but as a Gentile, I've kind of felt like I'm on the outside looking in. It's so like a little insider, like insider baseball kind of thing. Um, and again, I don't know, how many of you guys here um, are not, you don't have any Jewish blood in you as far as you know? Raise your hands. Get those Gentile hands up, all right? Um, right, the good news about today's text is it's written directly to Gentiles. Uh, he actually says, hey, I'm speaking to you Gentiles. So the good news about today's text is for many of us, he's finally speaking to us Gentiles. If you're here with Hebrew blood, it's all for you the whole time. But today he's like, I'm talking to you Gentiles. So I'm like, man, finally he, he has something to say to us. 
The hard news is that today's text, it's not just speaking to us, but he challenges us as Gentile people, all right? So let's keep reading. Verse 16, Paul says, Now if the first fruits are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Now if some of the branches were broken off, and you, though a wild olive branch, say wild olive branch. You're, if you're a Gentile, you're wild, all right? Wild olive branch. Don't even tell you you're boring. Be like, dude, I'm a, I'm a wild Gentile. We're grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. Do not boast that you are better than those branches. But if you do boast, you do not sustain the root, but the root sustains you. All right, so, so the picture here is despite Israel's fall into unbelief, idolatry, and injustice, the nation was still holy to God. The people were still holy to God. Not the modern day national, you know, political nation state, um, but, but the people uh, ethnically that were Jewish. Now at the end of verse 16, Paul says he wants to say, he wants to lay out some realities tied to salvation. And to do that, he's going to use the illustration of a tree and roots and branches. And so there are really uh, kind of four parts to the tree. And I'm going to say five questions we need to answer. And number one, who is the root? Number two, uh, who is the trunk of the tree? Number three, who are the natural branches? Number four, who is the wild shoot? And number five, uh, why does this all matter? All right. So the first one is this, is, is what is uh, the tree? What is the, what is the trunk of the tree? So, so the, the entire olive tree represents Abraham and his children. It's kind of roots through trunk. Uh, it's really God's people throughout history, both Jew and Gentile. Um, Paul makes it clear here and in Galatians, and Jesus often got in trouble with the Pharisees by saying, God can make anyone a child of Abraham through faith. Those who were kind of nationalistic and racist at the time of Jesus were like, man, we're Jewish, we're, you know, we're awesome, we're God's chosen people. He's like, he can make any Gentile uh, into one of Abraham's children. It's not just you guys by blood. There, there is another way. He actually says, I could turn these rocks into children of Abraham if I, if I wanted to. And so again, just like within Israel, there were some who trusted him by faith, and then there, there were others who weren't. On the flip side, there are some Gentiles who by faith get brought into his family, his, his people. I mentioned uh, two weeks ago, I said, you know, has the church replaced the people of Israel? And I said, yes and no. And really the idea is this, is there's one people that are God's people that includes both Jew and Gentile. Does that make sense? So, so, so the only way into God's family is by trusting him. The other side of Jesus, everyone has to trust him by faith, both Jew and Gentile. So, 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 so the roots through the trunk, this is God's people throughout time. You've got Abraham as, as the, that father and then the people who kind of is the, the father of faith. So he's the first kind of person who's trusted God on his promises. And then everyone who's followed him, that's what the whole tree is made up of. Now on the tree, there are different branches. There are these natural branches who are the Jewish people who are believing. And then there are the wild olive branch, which represents the, the Gentile Christians. And it's this idea that you can graft in these wild branches into this olive tree, which actually, I'm not a, a, a horticulturalist, I can't even say it, a horticulturalist. I'm not a gardener, okay, I'm not a gardener. Um, I can't landscape, you guys get what I'm trying to say. Um, but it actually is possible uh, scientifically to graft in uh, wild branches. And so Paul's giving this picture that there were these branches that, were, that you thought were definitely a part of the tree, uh, and they were coming out naturally. And then there are these uh, other branches that are grafted in, right? These wild olive branches. So the natural branches are believing Israel that are still on the tree. And the wild olive branches grafted in are the Gentiles who on paper shouldn't have any claim 
to this God, but God has made a way for them through Jesus. And so the whole picture with its four parts represents Abraham plus all who have followed in Abraham's footsteps, his faith. Now, the fifth question I want to answer is, is this, why does this all matter? Like, why do we need this picture? Why do we need to know about this, this, this idea of who's in and who's out or whatever? And, um, and, and that becomes clear as we keep reading. Verse 19 says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And so Paul's saying, right again, there were some in the history of Israel who were ethnically Jewish but spiritually alienated from God, and they were removed as God's people. But what was it that got them removed? It's an important thing to think about. And it's the things we see Israel guilty of throughout the Old Testament. Uh, taking their salvation for granted, uh, paying lip service to God, going through religious motions, but their hearts don't really belong to him. The prophets echo this over and over and over again in the Hebrew scriptures. They're saying, you know, my name is on their mouth, but their heart is far from me, so their worship is disgusting to me, which is still true. I'm actually worshiping something else, pretending to worship Jesus. Um, and, and when he says, hey, you guys were, were grafted in, he's saying it's true that you're grafted in, um, but it's important how we view that reality. That should be a, a, a humbling reality that we were grafted in. Verse 20 says this, it's true enough, they were broken off because of unbelief, but you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but aware. Because if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. So it's like those who were really, uh, kind of confident in their salvation. They didn't love God. They were kind of presumptuous, like God owes me. Um, those those uh, Jewish people were, were cut off. And they were the or natural, original branches. They belonged there. They're natural. You were grafted in as add-ons. If you think that you can have that same casual attitude of unbelieving Israel, like even more so, you're easy to cut off. You're grafted in. He didn't spare the natural branches. He won't spare you either. Now, if you read that, that should be sobering stuff. Paul's like, you shouldn't be like, yeah, yeah, he, he cut those branches off and he put me in and I'm better than those guys and I'm awesome and Israel failed and we're dope. He's like, no, 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 no. You are still a human that can trust uh, in yourself and, and not trust in him. Paul says those who are Gentiles who claim to be followers of Jesus, don't be proud or arrogant in your thinking thinking that you can stop living by faith and still claim to have faith. There is a reality that the only thing that saved you was your faith in God's grace. You shouldn't be arrogant. And also, um, the part of your life that's transformed, that you can feel real good about, that's only possible because Jesus as Lord taught you to live that way and his spirit empowered you to live that way. I've said this before, I'll say it again. A self-righteous disciple of Jesus should be an oxymoron. We should be humble people. The word for, for Lord in Greek is, is, is it's master. Doulos. Doulos. It's saying, you are Lord, I'm not. You're in charge, not me. It's your way, not mine. It's not like a slogan. You just say, oh, he's my Lord and Savior. What does that mean? He's my king. He's my master. I do what he wants. And also, Savior, he saved me. I could not save myself. I want us to be a people who take God really seriously, but we don't take ourselves seriously. People who can apologize and repent early and often because our righteousness is not our own and our transformation is not our own and our salvation is not our own. Man, it was a gift. 
That doesn't mean you can't say something's wrong that is wrong. That doesn't mean you can't speak truth. But it means you better speak that truth with grace because that truth that was delivered to you was full of grace. It was embodied by grace and truth in the person of Jesus. One commentator says this. He says, Paul's warning was remarkably prophetic. How arrogant Christendom has been. Every bit as arrogant as the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people of Jesus' day. Just as national Israel stumbled over Jesus, so today we live in a world where what is thought of as the Christian West has stumbled over Jesus as much as ancient Israel ever did. I, I can't tell you how often I see stuff on the news or I hear stuff, or even as a pastor, I talk to people you know, in their own lives, and I see an arrogance, and I see a, I'm a Christian, I deserve all this stuff. No one, I mentioned this last week, right? No one gets to tell me what to do. No one, persecution, there's no way it'll happen, even though it's promised to us. This arrogance that we need to be respected and, and put on a, kind of put on a, 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 a platform that everyone should get on board with us instead of a humble, vulnerable, weak, yet strong people. Who are strong because of Jesus. We go, without him, we're not strong. I remember um, one time Brad Sarian was teaching on prayer. I don't know if you guys remember, you probably don't. It's like eight years ago. So if you remember sermons like that, you, you've got, you don't even need to be here anymore. You just got scripture down. But I remember one time he said, um, he said this idea of like prayer warriors is ridiculous. He said, because we pray because we're weak. We're not better than other people. Someone who prays a lot knows that apart from Jesus, you can do nothing. They're humble people, not these like courageous people. If they're courageous, it's, it's because they know he's with them. So this moves us to another question about salvation, kind of a big one in the history of the church as you read this passage. And the question is this, can you lose your salvation? Can you lose your salvation? If you walk in arrogance and presumption, you kind of do your own thing, can you lose your salvation? And the answer um, we believe as a church is no, that you cannot lose your salvation. As a church, we believe in a doctrine that's, I think, taught all throughout Scripture called the perseverance of the saints, the perseverance of the saints. Now, this is sometimes described in like evangelical circles as once saved, always saved. Um, but that isn't a helpful way to describe perseverance. And the reason for that is this, is the perseverance of the saints does teach that if you are indeed a true follower of Jesus, that you can't lose your salvation. But it also teaches that the way to know if your salvation is genuine is that you keep following Jesus all the days of your life. Does that make sense? So, like, if you are his, you'll keep following him. And since you're his, he can't lose you. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm talking about genuine, ongoing trust and faith. God is much more concerned about your direction than your current location. How I know you're saved is if you're moving towards Jesus, not your current location. I hope that's really encouraging to you guys who feel like, man, my life has been such a mess and I'm, I'm finally trying to trust Jesus with these areas and it's so hard. I've got addictions I'm working through. I need to rewire, re rewire my neural pathways. Uh, I have to learn to trust people. I need to forgive people. Man, obedience is freaking hard and I wonder if it's real. And if it feels hard and you're trying, it means it is real. You could be knee deep in an addiction, but moving towards transformation and change in Jesus. I'm like, I feel great about you. You could be in church 20 years and talk about how you used to change and grow. You don't have any faith stories in the last like two, three years, 10 years. Everything's like stuff that I used to share the gospel. I used to give generously. I used to serve people. I used to find my identity in Jesus. I used to love my enemies. 
I used to forgive. The gospel used to be the dominant narrative I lived by. Man, there should be current stuff happening. Again, not perfection, but man, I'm slowly but surely becoming like Jesus. I can point to what God's been doing in my life lately. Not perfection. Not current location, but direction. You think about it, it's got to be direction. Because destination, none of us are perfect this side of heaven. So it can't be the destination, but it's the direction. Are you moving towards him? Which will continue on the other side of the grave if you are his. It's an ongoing trust and faith. Um, for me, one of the things I think God's been really challenging me on, uh, which will probably feel really good as you think about my sermons, but um, is to talk less. That's so often, it's so easy um, for me to, to think, man, I'm just so smart. To just go, I know what to do in any given situation. God's teaching me it's safe to say, I don't know. I, I actually don't know what to do. We have two situations right now. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I have a couple ideas, a couple options, but Jesus, I need your wisdom. I need your power. I need both your wisdom and your, I need your wisdom to know the right thing to do and the courage to do it. That's something that's happening in my life right now. And it's not just like I want to be quieter. It's I want to love people better. And you love people well by listening well. Doesn't mean you do everything they said, but you, you hear them. You see them. Jesus listened. Jesus looked at people. So he is both Lord and Savior. And we should keep moving towards it. Um, there's a balance to how we relate to God um, that, that's really, really important. This idea of him being Lord and Savior. Uh, I think it's illustrated... Um, by a guy named James Brian Smith in his book, The Good and Beautiful God. He tells this story. He said, I was preaching at a church five years after having preached there once before. Because I have a limited repartee, I was giving a similar message to the one I had given previously. I was hoping that in the five years that had passed, the congregation would have experienced a slight case of amnesia. I related to the church some of the concepts you've already read in this book. God loves you without condition. Jesus died for all of your sins. God has reconciled you to himself. And in Christ, you are a new creation. After the service, a large and powerful man came up to me. He looked at me and held out an electronic device, uh, electronic device to me without saying a word. I looked closely at it, and on it was the sermon I had given five years earlier. I immediately assumed he was going to mock me for preaching the es essentially the same sermon. I apologize for preaching such a similar sermon, but you have to understand, I only have one sermon, I suppose. I looked at his face and noticed a tear falling down his cheek. He said, I didn't come up to tease you about your sermon being the same, but to thank you. I heard this message five years ago, and it changed my life completely. I grew up in a highly legalistic church, and every week I heard about how God was mad at me, how I was not good enough. I lived every day in fear of God, and I didn't love God at all. When I heard your sermon, it melted my heart. I bought, I bought the CD and downloaded the MP3. I've listened to it dozens of times and have given it away to just about everyone I know. I'm a police officer, so I'm not used to being so emotional. I just wanted to thank you for this message. We gave each other a big bear hug and he wept. I was overcome by his story and overwhelmed by his emotions. After he walked away, I basked in the glow of knowing that I had actually made a difference in someone's life and I turned to God and silently, silently thanked him. This reinforced in my mind just how life-changing this message is about a God who loves us without condition. Then I noticed a young woman who was waiting to speak with me. So I stepped to where she was standing and introduced myself. She then said with a huge smile on her face, thank you so much for that sermon. It was very freeing for me. The glow returned for a moment until she went on. You see, 
You see, she said, I've been living with my boyfriend and having premarital sex for the past six months. And I was raised in a church that said this was a sin, and I felt really guilty about it. But this morning, you said that God loves us without condition and that Jesus has forgiven all our sins. And then I realized that my guilt was totally unnecessary. Jesus paid it all. So I just want to say thank you for liberating me. (laughs) She shook my hand and started to walk away with a bounce in her step, like a woman who had just been told by her doctor that she's cancer-free, even though she is actually riddled with it. My heart sank. I realized then that simply proclaiming the good news that God loves us no matter what we do is not the whole story. What she failed to understand and what I later was able to explain to her is that our loving God is also a consuming fire. That may sound daunting, but it's actually very good news. There was much I needed to explain to that young woman about the holiness and purity of God. Fortunately, the brief interaction was not our last discussion. And so um, we, should, we, we should be someone that looks like a mix of the two people who walked up. We should be able to weep. Or again, maybe you're not a super, you don't externalize your emotion with tears. But you should, you should be in the space where you are deeply grateful. Whatever the, the deepest, whatever the... Um, the outworking or manifestation of deep gratitude for you, the deepest of gratitude, that should be on display in us if we really have received Jesus' work for us. So for some it's crying, for some it's just quietness. There should be an awe to God's grace. Like he did, I couldn't do it, he did it. I don't deserve it. He's reconciled to me and I'm so grateful and I don't deserve it. But in light of that, we should also say, and because of that, because he gave me everything though I brought nothing, and I want to respond with everything. Romans 12, 1 to 2 says, in view of God's mercy, present your life as a living sacrifice. That's where Paul's going next. So it's not, oh man, what a sacrifice. I'm gonna wild out. It's what a sacrifice. Now I wanna respond with a sacrifice. Not to earn anything, but to, but to reflect gratitude and honor. So two questions on this idea, man, uh, where are you at with your salvation? Two questions I have for you. The first one is, are you still trusting him as Savior? Are you still trusting him uh, as Savior, Jesus as Savior? Uh, Are you looking to something other than Jesus to make you right with God? Could be giving, could be Bible reading, could be prayer, could be sexual purity, could be political activism online. Whatever it is, you go, I'm a good person because I got this stuff. Uh, Another question, do you even care about your salvation? Like, do you have a worldview that even values salvation at this point in your life? And then are you grateful for it? Um, uh, This past week, I was up in Big Bear with um, Chris and Meryl Venons and about 100 other people uh, at a church leader retreat in Big Bear. And, uh, And it was one of the most enlarging moments of my life, um, uh, it wasn't one of the messages. There was this interview they did, and they interviewed this couple, uh, a brother and a sister who are in their 40s, uh, late 40s. And uh, the brother actually lives in San Diego, and the brother actually lives in, the sister lives in Orange County. And uh, their story is this, is their parents are currently, they're missionaries in Kabul, Afghanistan, and they're staying. And they're in their 70s. And when, when they were in their 20s, uh, they've had a heart for, for Kabul the whole time. Uh, they were there in the 60s and 70s. They, they actually got married in Afghanistan. They're British. But they've had a heart for Afghanistan their entire life. And they actually got married in, in Kabul in the 70s, kind of that miniskirt Kabul era. They were there, kind of the hippie era of the, kind of the Silk Road. And they wanted to reach hippies and the people of Afghanistan with the gospel. And then um, she got pregnant. 
And uh, simultaneously, uh, the, the Islamic Revolution was happening in, in Iran. Uh, Pakistan was starting to get a little wild, and Afghanistan was as well. And so uh, they decided with kids, they needed to set, some, they needed to set missions aside for a season with, with really young kids. And uh, they lived in England for 25 years. Uh, they were pastors. They raised their kids there. They had three kids. Uh, they raised them up there. And then in 2005, uh, they made the decision, we're moving back to Afghanistan. And they've been there for 16 years. They've done some amazing work. Uh, they, they have, um, prior, obviously, to the, to the Taliban, uh, they, they've helped institute leadership stuff throughout the culture that is changing um, Afghanistan. Uh, they're, they're, uh, they have a nonprofit that's seen, like, dozens of people come to know Jesus. As a matter of fact, right now, what they're spending all their time doing is getting Afghani Christians out of Afghanistan. They've gotten five of the people that work with them out. Harrowing stories of, of uh, people losing their six-year-old kids and miraculously finding them in a crowd. Uh, people walking through a half mile of sewage to get to the American checkpoint and realizing they don't have the, the right paperwork and praying stuff through. People being kidnapped by their Muslim siblings uh, as the Taliban move in. There's all this stuff happening, and they're giving their life away. And they said, we're not. The, the British came to them and said, hey, we'd like to, to pull you out. And then the Americans even came just for extra credit. They're not Americans. They said, hey, can we pull you out? And they said, if we leave now, we're communicating to all the Afghani Christians who cannot leave. We told them Jesus will sustain you. He will get you through. And we're turning our back on that message. So this brother and sister, they said, you know, we grew up. They were pastors in England. They did, then they moved. Uh, we really wish they'd be around their grandkids. We have all these things. But we're so proud of them. And, and, and he said, hey, but here's what I wanted to ask you guys is please stop praying that my family would get out of Afghanistan. Don't pray that my parents would get out of Afghanistan because the only way they're getting out is dead. He said, they've accepted. They will likely be martyred. The Taliban has their information. Al-Qaeda has their information. But, but they're going to stay. The, the dad texted their family a message that said, I think we might meet Jesus tonight a few weeks ago. And then the mom said, I'm so excited. <laughs> They really believe Jesus for his promises. They're in their 70s. They said, we're not going to die in an old folks home in Southern California. One of their sons is really wealthy. He's like, dude, I'll, I'll take care of you. And they said, no, this is where we're called to be. Now, I hear that story, and I'm like, man, do I even know Jesus? I'm not doing anything that sacrificial for people, for Jesus. Now, the reason I'm giving this illustration right now under the question, are you trusting him as Savior, was we were blown away by that. We were praying. I might have one of the guys come through and, and even speak here in a little while. Um, it was amazing. But Meryl got up to speak right after Meryl Vinans. And she got up and she said, as I listened to them talk, I was in tears. And I thought, wow, Jesus, you must really love their parents. Like, you must really love them. And she heard, you know, Jesus say through his spirit, she heard him say, I, I do really love them. And Meryl, I really love you too. I love you, matter of fact, as much as I love them. And Jesus died for you as much as he died for them. And we all have different callings. And so you need to know, do you really believe that Jesus loves you on your best day as much as he does on your worst day? Do you really believe that if you, gave your, if you died as a martyr for Jesus, or if you were kind of a run-of-the-mill follower of Jesus in a safe nation who just try to be a disciple faithfully, he'd love you the same. Because he does. He is a savior. He died for, for real sins. So are you still trusting him as savior? But my second question is, are you still trusting him as Lord? Is he actually your Lord? Some helpful questions to assess that, man, is if someone observed your life, would they know Jesus was in charge of your life, that he was Lord? 
Or would they assume, ah, I think they're kind of doing the American dream. And because uh, they're doing the American dream, uh, the one thing that's different about them is twice a month they go to a church service. And outside of that, you know, they, they try to be nice. But, man, they're, they're, not, they're not doing anything radical. They're not, they're not, uh, they're not facing any persecution because they're not proclaiming Jesus. They're not calling people to, to mercy and justice. They're not, they're not doing any of that stuff in a way that, that costs if someone could look at your, your calendar and your bank account and your relationships, would there be enough evidence to convict you as a disciple of Jesus? You're on trial for being a disciple. People looked at all your stuff and go, man, this is what they're about. They prioritize this guy. Like he's king. Some ways to assess Jesus' lordship, man, is are there areas you are actively, currently, intentionally growing in? Again, not just stories of the way Jesus used to work in your life, but current stories. Are you actually even seeking to obey him? And you're not doing it perfectly. It's hard. But you know it's hard because you're trying. You're seeking to obey him. Not to earn any love from him, but to go, you've loved me. I want to honor you back. Another question is, are there parts of your life that are off limits to Jesus? And we got a younger millennial crowd. I don't know if you guys remember MC Hammer's uh, Can't Touch This. My older friends. Are there parts of your life that you go, you can't have access to this, Jesus? It could be something big like, um, I, I will never forgive so-and-so. Now, again, um, we need to grieve how we were wounded before we can truly forgive. That's important. You can forgive too quickly. It's just not, it's not forgiveness. But you need to forgive. You need to grieve the loss, grieve the wound, but then, but then you, you need to forgive other people. That you go, ah, actually, I, I never need to forgive that person. Is there, uh, it, it, it could be your, a sexual relationship you have, financial security some of us, we, we save way more than we need. Some of us go into debt a ton, and then we can't give. Like, I can't give. I got, I got like, this tight budget. Well, you have a tight budget because of all the debt you've incurred, so it's not exactly, you know what I mean? You, just, you, you did it in advance. You're not overspending each month. You, you did it in advance. So, man, it's a tithing, 10%. I can't, I can't get anywhere near that, man. You, you know how big my mortgage is or my car payment is. Like, oh, man, that's a, that's a call you made. It could be something small. By the way, I'm not saying any of that's bad. I'm saying, did you even bring it to Jesus and ask? Um, it could be like a, a TV show. Like no one can touch this TV. Like, like, like in, you, man, you got my heart, Jesus, but you can't have my Tuesday night, 8 to 9 p.m. My Thursday, I'm, I'm not even talking about a specific show. Thursday to 7, 7 to 8, whatever. Is there anything you're like, no, nah, man, we should do some stuff that doesn't make sense to other people around us. That, that, that we go, you or it's you, not me. Do you think you're above serving? Jesus said, as I serve, man, you guys are called to serve. First um, John talks a lot about the way that you confirm your salvation is do you love God's people, the church? He says, man, don't, you, you're, the evidence of your love for God is demonstrated by your love for people, especially his people. So an illustration I, I think is helpful is, this, is an illustration of marriage. So you think about salvation. Um, on one end, it's really hard to move forward in your marriage. If you're always asking the question, you're like, you're like are we really married? Are you sure we're married? Do you still love me? Are you going to leave? Are you here? Do you really love me? Are you, right? That, that's one way for a marriage to struggle to move forward because you're always like doing day one all over again. It's just this huge insecurity. Like, man, are, do, man can we, do you have the marriage certificate? Can I see it again? I'm going to get it, uh, you know, looked at by an expert, your documents expert. I just want to make sure it's real. But on the flip side, it's hard to move forward in a good marriage if you're like, uh, we're married, right? Yeah, okay, cool. I, I'm not going to work on having a good marriage at all, right? Do we, have, do we have the marriage certificate? 
then stop asking me for things. We're married. No, marriage, you're married in an instant, but you stay married by continuing to be married, by pursuing your spouse, by, by, by not cheating, by um, moving towards your spouse. Again, that idea of direction, not destination. Are you continuing to work at your marriage? There's a good chance that if, if, if you are, you're, you're going to stay married as much as it's up to you, and, 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 and God can keep his people. But are you pursuing and moving towards him? Is the relationship, is the quality of your relationship with God getting better over time? Is there more intimacy? Is there more obedience? Is there more love? Romans eleven twenty two 22 is the last verse in the text. says, therefore consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness towards you if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. One truth we know is that there was a severity Jesus experienced on the cross. And it opened the way for us to experience kindness, for us to be grafted in. And so what I want to do today um, is take communion, but I want to take communion together. So I want to encourage you guys to come up and, and get the elements. And then I'm going to lead us to, uh, through a, a time of confession, a time of thanksgiving, and a time of response and listening. Before we take communion, uh, Maria Orta uh, was praying. She felt like she has some prophetic to share, so she's going to go ahead and share that now. Hi, guys. Um, at this leadership conference we were at this week, um, there was kind of a theme that happened, and I feel like it's for us, too. And the idea was um, a woman named Kristen shared that when her son was born, she felt like God had given her the greatest gift ever. But over time, what happened was her son became the most beautiful thing that she could have like ever known. And so she realized that she began to like essentially close her fist to God. She, she wanted to keep him safe. She wanted to keep him for herself. She wanted to not really allow really God to like do what he would with her son's life. And the idea is that we all carry things in our life that we are close fisted about. Um, like Andy was sharing, like if Jesus is the Lord, then he comes into every facet of our life whether it's a family, and there are things that each of us carries, whether it's like a family member or a job or a fear or control or whatever it would be that your invitation today is to ask yourself, like, what am I clenching on to that God's asking me to release and worship and an offering to him? Um, one other thing I want to say is, um, I have no interest in trying to make people do stuff they don't want to do. Um, but what I do want to do is invite you. And by the way, if you haven't seen Jesus clearly, you're not going to want to do anything for him. But if you go, Jesus, you have loved me so deeply and sacrificially. What do you want me to do? And I'm going to do that. Does that make sense? Um, so, so as we take communion, first I want to start here, kind of an old school communion moment. 
but I want you to silently ask the Spirit to bring to mind sin that you need to confess to Jesus. Just to ask him, hey, what in this past week has displeased you? What, what actions, what habits, what things have I said? What, what, where, where have I proved that I need you to die for me on the cross? So go ahead and, and, and take, take a second to do that. Quietly in your own heart. I get soggy, so feel free, to, feel free to take the bread and drink the juice at the same time. I now encourage you to keep that same posture. I encourage you to maybe keep your eyes closed to help you focus on Jesus. But we've confessed our sin. I want you to thank him for his grace and receive it from him as Savior. Thank him for his grace and receive it as Savior. your eyes closed for a second. I just want to ask one more question of God, and, and it's a question of how do you want me to respond to you this week, Lord Jesus? As my King, as my Master, as my Lord, how do you want me to respond to you this week? There's a, um, a thing I used to do, it was a management technique I was taught, uh, organizational management technique, and it was this idea of I'd meet with my direct reports, and we'd do this thing called start, stop, continue. We'd ask each other, hey, in this working relationship, what do you want me to start doing? And then we'd say, hey, in this working relationship, both supervisor and you know, person being supervised, um, what do I need you to stop doing that's unhelpful or not working? And then the third one is, what do you want me to continue doing? What is going great? What do you appreciate that I'm doing? And, and it kind of, that's this moment of response. It's kind of like, Jesus, what's my start, stop, continue with you? Is there anything you want me to, to start doing? Um, maybe a relationship to make right or pursuing him or, or actually making time to, to be with him. Could be an uh, act of generosity or service. Could be an apology. On the flip side, what does he want you to stop doing? Could be a sinful habit he wants you to deal with and get help for. A relationship he wants you to make right. And then lastly, what, what does he want you to continue doing? And so let's just take a second and ask King Jesus, Lord Jesus, how do you want me as me individually to respond to your love this week.
put out your hands, open them, the posture of receiving.